everybody. Welcome back to WVU Reads. We are continuing our journey through Tara Westover's book, Educated, which is this year's campus read, and continuing to explore the various themes that the book raises. Today, we're talking about memoir, which is the book's genre, and I've invited my good friend Cutter Wood, who is a memoirist and a nonfiction writer, to help us talk about that. I'm sitting here in the studio, and I'm looking at my copy of Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, which is a book I would never choose to read, but I helped facilitate a book club out at a prison with the Appalachian Prison Book Project, and the guys really wanted to read this book. So Shoe Dog is Phil Knight's memoir. I'm looking at the front cover, and he's gotten his good friends and fellow billionaires Bill Gates and Warren Buffett to blurb it. Apparently, Bill Gates says it's an amazing tale, and Buffett says Phil is a gifted storyteller. I'm going to read from a little bit from the back here. But Knight, the man behind the swoosh, has always been a mystery. Now, in a memoir that's surprising, humble, unfiltered, funny, and beautifully crafted, he tells his story at last. So, if you can't tell, uh, I'm a little skeptical of this genre, memoir. In fact, I would go as far to say that it's memoir is a debased genre, but that's also what I like most about it. Memoir is the province of aspiring politicians and faded rock stars, and, I guess, megalomaniacal CEOs. It's the genre that fits most comfortably in our neoliberal, late capitalist world, where, as the Wu-Tang Clan once put it, cash rules everything around me where capital is the answer to every question, the solution to every problem, the end and the means of every human effort. For the politician and the influencer, a memoir can serve as a sort of amped-up business card, a more colorful CV. It provides exposure, maybe a TED Talk, or an appearance on Fresh Air, even the Today Show. For people like J.D. Vance, who wrote Hillbilly Elegy, and Mayor Pete Buttigieg, the memoir becomes part of a multi-pronged branding effort. How can anyone in that context, amongst such company, make literature? How can they tell the truth? Educated is, I think, a fascinating example of memoir because it does, I think, make an earnest attempt to tell the truth. And that distinguishes it from some of these other memoirs that I've mentioned. Although, to be fair, I I haven't read Mr. Knight's uh, book yet. But Educated never feels like she's selling something or like she's trying to leverage her experiences into anything other than a safer, stabler adulthood and a decent piece of literature. But even with her book, truth is very much at issue. So, as some of you may know, Westover's parents have taken issue with her portrayal of the family. Mostly they've done so through their lawyer, although her mother is also active on Facebook. Uh, But I wanted to read a little bit of what her lawyer has said about the book. So Blake Atkin is his name, and he said, quote, there's a little germ of truth in Educated, but that the book falsely portrays the Westover family. He goes on to say, they are conservative, patriotic people. Tara says her father is a fundamentalist, which infers that he believes in polygamy. That's certainly not the truth. She actually says her father has schizophrenia and that her mother had a severe brain injury that was never cared for, so she has lost her motor skills. Anyone who knows her knows that is not true. End quote. 
Now, I think he's mischaracterizing Westover's book, and she certainly doesn't pretend to be an expert when she diagnoses her father with schizophrenia, but rather someone who's simply trying to understand his rather erratic behavior. The lawyer goes on to say, The Westovers have hundreds of people that rely on their business, so they've instructed me not to let the allegations go unanswered. And that word allegations is so interesting because it really casts educated in a very different light as almost as a document of some kind rather than a very personal, highly subjective account of someone's life. He also addresses the abuse. As readers of the book know, Tara Westover's older brother, Sean, is physically abusive. And the lawyer says, quote, they, meaning her parents, they thought they were dealing with the situation the best they could with what they knew, end quote. Two of her brothers, Tyler and Richard, have also addressed the question of the truthfulness of Tara Westover's memoir, and both, I think, from more sympathetically than her parents have, and there's probably obvious reasons for that, but I wanted to read a little bit from Tyler. So Tyler wrote an Amazon review of the book, and he said, quote, Our parents are extremists, and they and other members of our family have done terrible things that have hurt Tara. There is no doubt there was abuse, neglect, and other awful choices, end quote. However, Tyler also goes on to push against some of the ways that Tara Westover portrays her family, particularly the ways that they helped or hindered their children's education. And Tyler provides several examples of the ways in which his parents, particularly his father, encouraged him to go to school. And in the book, the father discourages Tara from going to school. And Tyler says that his dad really wanted him to become an engineer so that he could help expand the family's contracting business. And that when Tyler himself was having doubts about getting a PhD at Purdue, his parents had really pushed him to do it. Now, just because his parents pushed Tyler to get an advanced degree doesn't mean that they would necessarily behave the same way to Tara. Obviously, Tyler is a man and Tara is a woman. That might some influence on on that particular issue. Uh, but, you know, re- regardless, I think it raises some pretty fascinating questions, uh, one of which is, well, wh- what can we reasonably expect from a memoir in terms of the truth? And when should we be upset if a memoir maybe doesn't speak truthfully or accurately in the ways that it, it portrays and accounts for events in the past. So again, I've invited Cutter Wood onto the show today to help us answer that and, and other questions. So Cutter is the author of Love and Death in the Sunshine State, the story of a crime, which blends at least two distinct genres, memoir and true crime. Cutter was born in central Pennsylvania. He received his BA from Brown University and an MFA in creative writing from the University of Iowa. He is a recipient of the prestigious NEA Fellowship, and he's had essays published in Harper's and other magazines. He was a visiting scholar at the University of Iowa and the University of Louisville, and he currently lives in Brooklyn, and I'm so pleased to have him on the show. So, Cutter, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jeff. It's really nice to... uh have you in this virtual space and to be talking to you about uh, books and memoir specifically. So I thought maybe we could start with your book, Love and Death in the Sunshine State. I was reading some of the reviews last night, and, and I one of them described your book as blending true crime and personal memoir. And I thought that would mm-hmm. be an interesting place to start because, uh, to me, that suggests that a book 
can be more than just a memoir, that it can contain memoir but not be limited to memoir. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I think so. I mean, I think to me, and this, this is not me commenting about anybody else's work, just kind of my own process mostly, but I've always found that memoir kind of inevitably leads into thinking about larger things. You know, when you begin to write about your life, uh, that ties into so much else, it ties into your, you know, current cultural history could tie into science, all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. And on the other end, you know, if you're, if you're writing about anything kind of in the public domain, you know, if you're writing about the political situation, I feel like that inevitably you have to take into account your own, your own role in that. Um, so to me, really, they're irrevocably tied and you can't really get into memoir without eventually getting into something else. <laughs> And, and getting into other people's lives as well, I imagine. That seems to be often one of the kind of exciting but also sticky parts of writing memoir is being responsible for uh, depicting other people fairly or accurately or, or whatever it might be. Yeah, sticky is, sticky is the perfect word for it. Uh, it is very molasses-y. You cannot touch it without uh, finding yourself covered. Um, I mean, kind of to give an idea in my book and maybe a little bit of a background about the book, just to give people a, mm-hmm. a basis Yeah, that'd here. be great. So the, the book is basically, you know, it, it was inspired by this disappearance down in Florida. I'd been staying at this motel down there, uh, and not long after I left, somebody set fire to it. <laughs> I just got very sucked into this, this story, you know. It turned out that a woman had gone missing not long before that. And um, I really got pulled in and I ended up talking to people down there and interviewing people who, who knew the woman. Uh, and yeah, you, you don't necessarily realize or think about too much when you, when you get into a, a kind of journalistic project like that, that you can't just pull yourself out. <laughs> and, and so for me, you know, when I, when I realized that I was really getting deep into these people's lives, um, that's when I really felt the pressure to include the memoir aspect. Hmm. You know, it, it, it seemed like it was really fair if I was going to, to, uh, you know, take any sort of, of look at in other people's lives that I, I deserve to apply that same pressure to my own life as well, which is not always fun or pleasant, but I think it's worthwhile. And it's something we should all be doing. That's, that's fascinating because, uh, I had, sometimes think about memoir, and I described memoir a little bit this way in the introduction to this episode, as opportunistic. Um, But you're describing memoir as sort of more like uh, a responsibility or or a duty to to sort of apply, to give the same kind of attention that you're giving to other people and other events, to, to give that kind of attention to yourself and to the events of your own life. I mean, I think it can go both ways. Um, and it's, it's very possible to write a memoir, which does not, uh, apply any sort of criticism to yourself mm-hmm. <laughs> and applies a lot to others. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and vice versa. But I, I certainly feel, you know, uh, if you're, if you're writing about something, I think it can really be deceitful to, to pretend that you're just a removed, uh, source who has nothing whatsoever to do with it. Um, yeah, so I, I, I definitely feel the pressure continually when I'm writing to, to take into account 
my own perspective and, and where I'm coming from and you know, make that clear and make, make it try to make myself a character as well, I guess. Would yeah. Be another way of putting it. Well, I, th- I think you do it really beautifully in your book, but I can, I, I think it's also very challenging to move between, or I imagine it's very challenging to move between your own experience and these other experiences, which like, maybe you could just talk a little bit about a little bit more about the story that you tell in your book, uh, because it is very different than your life and the circumstances of your life. Yeah, yeah. So, so really, this ended up becoming a, a book largely about this man, William Cumber, uh, who turned out to be kind of at the center of this disappearance. And uh, as, as we found out in the end, also, uh, it turned out that he had murdered his girlfriend and, and disposed of her. Uh, but so, you know, it, it ended up that I was spending a great deal of time down in Florida interviewing him. Uh, he'd been in prison for something separate, so he was he was being held in various prisons down there in Florida, and I would go go down every few months and, and track him down to prison and go visit with him and just talk and talk and talk. And, yeah, it was obviously a very different story from my own, <laughs> but also a lot of commonalities. You know, we mm-hmm. ended up, we were both from, from kind of struggling uh, former boom towns in the Northeast. You know, he had come from a coal town and I'd come from a lumber town. We certainly had some similar cultural backgrounds, um, but he certainly didn't have all the support that I'd had growing up and, and had gone down several consecutive pretty bad paths. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, I, that was a big part of what drove me to feel like, okay, here's a guy who has, uh, started out in a semi-similar, similar place. No, he easily could have been somebody that I went to, to school with in central Pennsylvania and then to try and track down, you know, what, what took him his direction what took me in my direction and what are the similarities there? You know, in the end, it was a book that was a lot about, uh, relationships mm-hmm. and how did this relationship of his go so terribly and what have I done in my own to try and prevent that or, or what have I done in my own that, that has been a failure mm-hmm. I hear you describing memoir as a, uh, almost more a process than a genre um, a process of self-reflection self-examination uh, whereas I think a lot of people would think of memoir more like what educated is which is a story about memories and sort of uh, recounting events in the past and tracing some kind of development over time, a personal development mm-hmm. over time. Uh, so that, I think, first of all, I want to, I'd like, that's really useful for us to be able to distinguish between those two things, sort of memoir as a process and, and memoir as a genre. Um, let's talk a little bit about memoir as a genre, though, uh, and this sort of more conventional understanding of memoir and its relationship to memory. Um, and, and, and I wanted to actually get into educated a little bit. Uh, I was yeah, revisiting the, just the beginning of the book as I was getting ready for this conversation. And it's, it's such a fascinating, I think, uh, way to open her book. So I'll just read it very briefly, the, the first couple sentences. So again, this is how Westover opens Educated. Quote, My strongest memory is not a memory. It's something I imagined. 
then came to remember as if it had happened, end quote. And mm-hmm. the, the memory that she goes on to describe, which is not actually a memory, comes out of a story that her father had told the family when she was little. And it's a story about the feds surrounding their house, um, and it seems like shooting her mother. So obviously that's not true. Her mother is a major character in the book. Uh, but that the opening a memoir by acknowledging you know, the way that imagination uh, and stories play this really central and profound role in determining our memories, that, that seemed, struck me as pretty bold and, and also pretty honest. But I'm curious what you think of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that, that first line. Um, and I think that's kind of, to me, a, a vitally important statement to get out there as early as you can. Uh-huh. <laughs> and anything memoiristic, you know, that uh, if, if memoir is sticky, uh, memory itself is, I don't know what the word is. It's just really unreliable. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and you can find... Who know libraries full of studies devoted to exposing all the intricate ways that memory is unreliable. Um, this is actually also a big part of my research for this this book was looking at the way we construct memories. <laughs> you know, but they've done studies where uh, they will take people and um, and read them supposed memories that their parents have have recollected um, of these adults' lives, you know. Normally mm-hmm. it's a, a memory of being lost in a mall and not being able to find your parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've, they've convinced adults that these memories are true. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's all to say that memory is, is really unreliable, and I think you need to be straightforward with that. Um, but it's, it's interesting to me because I also see this, this kind of, of move just comes up all the time in memoir. Uh, and I hadn't, until you brought it up, hadn't really thought about the degree, you know, how how relatively common it is, you know, from, I think of like Mary Carr's Liars Club or Lauren Slater's Lying. Those are obviously also much about kind of the deceitfulness of memory. Um, what was the second one? Or, so you said Mary Carr's uh, The Liars Club. And Mary, Mary Carr's Liars Club. Lauren Slater has a book called Lying. Okay. And those are um, both memoirs? Which is, yes, yes. Hers is, hers is explicitly positioned as a memoir about lying. Hmm. Um, so you're, you're made to, you're kind of told to realize early on that a lot of it is itself going to be a lie. Yeah. Um, which is a, a fascinating conceit. Um, you have somebody like W.G. Zabald, who's not officially writing nonfiction, but I think a lot of people would argue that he's writing some form of it. Um, and his works are just littered with little hints about the unreliability of, of memory. It's very so, destabilizing to acknowledge that memory is uh, extremely unreliable, as you say. Uh, particularly, you know, I'm thinking back to your book when, when, when dealing with, like, crime and criminal justice, uh, which mm-hmm. I think probably often relies on people's memories, you know, witnesses' memories of what happened or, uh, mm-hmm. or something like that. So to, to acknowledge the unreliability of memory is, is a little scary. It is. It is. And it's, it's 
I think there's really, there's, maybe this is obvious. <laughs> there's a tension there between, between memory and this idea of, of truth, right? Yes. Um, and I think that's where a lot of people sometimes sour on memoir occasionally or, mm-hmm. or occasionally feel betrayed by memoir is when they, they feel set up to regard something as truth um, and instead get this uh, slippery little thing called memory. Yeah, yeah. No, and I think betrayal is a great word. There's another thing, I think, which is kind of embedded there, but we don't have to go to that now, which is that I, I think one of the, you know, take, take Million Little Pieces, for example, and, and I think maybe to a degree, a book like Educated, which is a very, um, it tells kind of like a, a hopeful story, right? Of like pulling, your, pulling yourself up from, from nowhere. Um, and I think that can be really dangerous territory to get into uh, if you're telling this, this very culturally desirable story. It's very easy to find yourself fitting your life pieces uh, into a narrative which might not be totally honest. Yes, right. Uh, but, but a narrative that the genre demands uh, or that, 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 that people really want when they read it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and... or that, that, that your publisher demands. <laughs> ah, okay. So your publisher might put some pressure on you to shape your story in some particular way. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think that's that's just part of the editorial process. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think there's any any huge secret there, but that's that's why you work with an editor to kind of shape your work. Um, but that can definitely lead you lead you into it. Uh, a dangerous territory if you're not careful. Well, that's interesting because that's sort of the other component of memory. Uh, that Westover brings up in that opening sentence is that both that 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 uh, imagination is involved, uh, but also stories. You know um, that that the memory that she that she's talking about grows out of a story, and it sounds like story itself or narrative um, that too can can lead us sort of astray or or away from the truth. Uh, the attempt to tell a good story or a coherent story whether you're being, you know, forced to do that by your publisher or whether that's just sort of inherent um, in, in, our, in, in the ways we try to make sense of our, our lives. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, this, this, I feel like, begins to get into pretty theoretical territory. <laughs> but, you know, you, there's the famous Joan Didion line, right? We tell ourselves stories in order to live, um, which has a number of different readings, but one of the fundamental ones to me is just that you use stories as a way to make sense of these sequence of events that don't necessarily come with any necessary, any like inherent shape or meaning, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like you, not like you get up on Tuesday and there's a little note beside your bed that says, this is the meaning of Tuesday. <laughs> um, no, you, you find yourself waking up one morning at like 28 or 35 or 42 and you're like, what the hell is the, the meaning of my life? Mm. Uh, and you look back and you have all these kind of ready-made stories there and you, you try to pick and choose from whichever makes sense with the events you have available in your memory. And yeah, I think it's, it can be very easy to find yourself getting trapped in a story that, that isn't really a good fit. Right. And the, the, <laughs> or believing. Yeah. The story is, the story is going to demand that you select certain details from your life to remember and draw on yeah, to yeah. reinforce that story. And, 
and just as importantly, it's going to demand that you exclude a huge amount of detail. You know, right? Any a 250-page book is going to exclude the vast, vast, vast majority of your life. Yeah. <laughs> there is something about selecting certain moments from a life that, that really capture a human. Mm. Is that something you're interested in doing as a writer? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I think a great deal of what I do when writing about my, my own life or about others' lives is, yeah, you're, you're kind of writing and writing and writing and writing and writing uh, and then kind of scraping it away <laughs> to try and find what's that moment where this, this mm. person where their personality comes through, you know, what's, what's the gesture that, that reveals who they are. Hmm. Um, and you, you encounter this kind of thing. I at least really thought I encountered it a lot, uh, especially in the journalistic aspect, you know, occasionally I spent, for instance, hours talking to this guy, William Cumber, mm -hmm. um, when he was in prison, a great deal when he was in prison. Yeah. I spent a lot of time talking to him when he was, he was very much lying to me about what had happened. And then, um, eventually we spent like a week together where he, he gave me the full, you know, real in quotes story of, of what it had been like to, to kill the woman he loves. Wow. And, and yeah, that was an intense story all on its own. Um, but one of the things that you find when you're talking to somebody is every so often there's just this moment where you say to yourself, Oh my God, this, this person could not have, been more himself in that moment hmm. <laughs> you know a little line a little gesture mm -hmm. i remember i remember talking to him one day um you know and he's this very kind of at this point in time he had this huge beard that he's been growing in prison um he's gone off his meds so he's a little more intense than usual and uh you know he's he's telling me some very very serious info and then he gets distracted he said oh i gotta go grab something and he leaves over talking and goes run back to his room. And he's just wearing socks. He's not wearing any shoes or anything. <laughs> and that, that to me was such a, just like hmm. such a, a strange moment from this man's life that really seemed to capture our interaction there. Hmm. Um, so you find that kind of thing all the time to me. And I think that is a big part of what, what I'm looking for in memoir and in writing more generally. Yeah. It, it sounds like it's, it, that it's not necessarily the, the details that you would expect or the moments that you would expect someone to reveal who they are mm -hmm. that you kind of see it out Absolutely. of the corner of your eye almost. Oh yeah. I mean you, uh, the worst thing you can do is, is, is plan for somebody to reveal themselves <laughs> as everybody, again, going back to photography, you know, anytime <laughs> somebody realizes you're taking a picture, you're guaranteed not to get, any authentic version of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's always interesting to see that process with children, you know, who very quickly come to understand what a camera is and the the theatrical element of of photography. Mm -hmm. But also their total inability to like represent themselves as authentic, which is sort of what I think adults learn to do. You know, they adults somehow learn yeah. to move th they they're they're self-conscious they know that like they're in front of a camera and that they're performing this version or this picture of themselves 
and they've they've had they've had enough practice that they that, that they can make the performance very convincing. Uh, and children like mm-hmm. my like uh, you know my daughter, she just, just kind of gives a half a smile. That's because she knows she's supposed to kind of put on a face, but it's totally unconvincing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, funny. Yeah, photography is a great. Uh, I don't know. It's a great way to think about this stuff. I think. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah. So in in educated, she uh, she doesn't use photography, uh, but she uses her diary. So she keeps a journal for a lot of her life, like when she's younger at home, and then also when she goes off to school. And she draws on her journal, and her journal is often it's a place not only like to record ideas, but to actually record information like James Comey style, you know, where like to take a memo mm-hmm. of this is what just <laughs> happened. And then she'll, re- she'll refer back to it. And, and she, you know, she suffers physical abuse from her brother. And so she's at points kind of comparing what she's written in her journal. And then these counter stories that she's being told by her brother uh, or her sister or other people who are, who are present. Um, so I, I you know, I, I guess that maybe the journal is another way to sort of draw out some of these issues that are at stake in memoir. Yeah. Yeah. And, and from like a legal standpoint, too, uh, she would have a much stronger case. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I actually I had one time I had a very uh, like contentious journalistic interaction with with a, an authority figure, you know, in, in government. Uh-huh. And actually, I felt like I should talk to a lawyer afterwards. Um, and his advice was simply write down everything that happened right now. <laughs> yeah. Just so so you have an account from that moment. And I, you know, I think as we saw with, with James Comey, uh, a contemporaneous, like a straight contemporaneous account of events really holds a great deal of power. And, and there's a reason for it. <laughs> Yeah, it's so interesting. And uh, I, I, I kept thinking with Comey, well, couldn't he have sort of written these later as though they were contemporaneous? You know, h- how can, mm-hmm. how can uh, those memos or, or journal entries serve as, as sort of t- to verify the truth of what happened? Couldn't they be fabricated? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, digitally speaking, there are plenty of ways to establish... Mm when a thing was written. Right, right. Um, and I don't, I don't know exactly how his memo was written, but I don't think it would be crazy to expect it to be digital. Yeah, that's true. That's funny. Uh, I, I really imagined he wrote it in his planner. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's exactly. probably not true. I've always imagined him writing it on paper, but probably yeah. it was just on a computer. Yeah. Well, um, the, the paper, I, it's got a little more Hollywood drama about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You see it with like, letterhead at the top or something. Yeah. I think the power of it though is that uh you know it has not been affected by the intervening time. If you can establish when it was written. Mm-hmm. Um and that that gives a, a great deal of, of power. Yeah. You know, even even if the account itself was was not accurate at the time, <laughs> you know that it has not been at all written in reaction to events that have happened since. Yeah. Uh and that it has not been distorted by time itself. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I think is 
it, one of the things that's kind of emerging from this conversation uh, that as often happens, like I, I, when I talk about, the more I talk about this book, the more impressed I am by it. Um, but, you know, thinking mm-hmm. about journals and diaries and, and hearing you talk about sort of the, the obligations of, of memoir and the way that, that memoir sort of imposes kind of duty to, um, to try to get at the truth of whether, you know, a truth of yourself or of other people or of events, um, that that uh, that that's a really important thing to do, you know. I mean, just a- as we think about our own lives, even if we're not writing memoirs about them, uh, that we might, for instance, keep a journal not only to provide an outlet for our thoughts and feelings, but to have a record of what we've done uh, and and of who we've been at different times in our lives. Something that we can go back to, not merely out of nostalgia but to tell more accurate stories about who we are and, and what our lives mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I mean, keeping a journal is the most humbling activity <laughs> you can undertake. Why, um, and you're a journal keeper, I believe. I am, yeah. I'm looking at a whole bunch of them right now. Do you... Do you, do you, uh, you, you horrified. And, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, and I would be horrified to open up any of them at random. <laughs> Uh-huh. Why you know, is that? If you're keeping, if you're actually keeping track of the things that are troubling you, <laughs> are preoccupying you, anything, if you're keeping track of anything that's on your mind, um, a few years and it's going to look pretty inane. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and also not all of it will, so, some things will kind of rise to the surface. Mm-hmm. And you talk about, about, uh, having a child. I have a, a daughter now who's in there. She's two and definitely things from that, that period of my life rise the surface as, as these are, these are elemental parts of the story. Hmm. Um, but then there, you know, also plenty of, of, of times when you're journaling about, uh, some strange dream you had or, <laughs> or, uh, a really bad breakfast. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, it's, I never have bad breakfast cause I have the same breakfast every day. So I know it's always mm-hmm. going to be good, and it is. It's sublime. <laughs> it's sublime. <laughs> but maybe in twenty years you'll have shifted breakfast, and you'll think, "Why was I eating that same breakfast all the time?" What's wrong with me? Yeah. Who yeah. was? Why was who, I stuck who, in that breakfast rut? Who was I then? Who was this person exactly. who would have toast with peanut butter and banana yeah. every single morning? I recently, I just remembering two memoirs that I saw in the airport, uh, Sally Field and Charles Krauthammer, and I was thinking about what a weird genre oh, this yeah. is, that it contains those books, but also educated, but also sort of parts of your book, and, it, you know, I, the, all, all, all of those books are so different from each other, uh, but we, we call them yeah. all memoir. Yeah, we haven't even gotten into that, that slice of memoir, which is notable people telling you about their lives, mm-hmm. um, which, which is really a whole different animal. Yeah, well, I'm curious if you draw a distinction between, like, literary memoirs and non-literary memoirs. When uh, Keith Richards, the Rolling Stones of course. guitarist, wrote yes, his I think memoir, we all know who right? Keith Richards um, is. What's that? I think we all know who Keith Richards is. Yeah, yeah. You never know. You never know. Keith, I think it was um, Keith Richards, you know, A Life. Probably, yeah, yeah. Uh, but he, his, his memoir began 
and not totally different from the a definite turn on on Westover's mm-hmm. first line. I think his first line was something like, "Despite what you might expect, I remember everything." Uh huh. Um, which is, uh-huh. you know, I think just a legitimately amazing first line. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it shows so much self awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, right about the image. And obviously. It's, yeah, about about what other people think of him and and the kind of life he's lived. Uh, obviously, is setting up for very different ex- expectations than Westover's first line. Um, but that's all all my way of saying that, you know, I, I think there is at least in the literary world a an inclination to, to dismiss out of hand yeah. something which is, which is just kind of uh, traffic trafficking on the the appeal of this person's public persona. Right. Um, but there are, there are really plenty of, of great examples of, of people who have done great books in that vein. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do though. I definitely, I would say the one spot where I am very specifically interested though is in people, you know, we were talking about those revealing moments in no life. Right. Um, and I think one of the challenges in any work in memoir is, first finding those moments and then understanding how they can be assembled into a story, which isn't expected, which does not have a typical ending. Yeah. Um, and those are, those are absolutely the sorts of books that I'm drawn to. Yeah. You know, and, I, I don't want some sort of, I don't want to be able to know what the last chapter is going to look like when I, when I start a book. Yeah. Is that because those books seem truer more honest? Yeah, I would say they seem more honest to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think, as we've been talking about, to me, part of the work of memoir and, and the work of, of just being a conscientious human being is, is trying to figure out your story and your purpose. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I don't believe that it fits very well necessarily into the stories we always tell ourselves. Yeah. As a culture. Yeah. One of my favorite memoirs yeah. is, is Stop Time by Frank Conroy. And and, mm-hmm. and and that book, I would say, falls in one of my favorite genres, which is the picaresque. Uh, because, like you're saying, it just seems a little more accurate to my experience of life, uh, which is that it's kind of episodic, and and one thing doesn't necessarily logically connect to the next. Um, and that, that it can mm-hmm. feel like a lot of stuff is happening to me rather than that I'm making <laughs> things happen, which I think often, you know, memoirs like Educated, um, they, they, the sort of suggestion is that there's a, you know, there's a, a, a will at the center that's, that's sort of shaping uh, the, mm-hmm. the life. Um, and that, that doesn't always feel true to me. Uh, so that's yeah. just to say, I yeah. recommend stop time and let's let's bring back the picaresque, uh, which at one point was yeah, like you, make... you know the most popular genre I think in the er- kind of early novels. <laughs> I think you're right. I think you're right. And you make a great point about uh, I never really thought of it of it this way, but yeah, there's something about a uh, a narrator who allows himself to be kind of bullied by the events of life <laughs> which to me at least as well also feels a lot more accurate to my experience mm-hmm. um, 
I don't always feel like the main character walking down the street. Right. <laughs> or if I if I do, it's it's certainly a main character who is continually sidestepping cars and <laughs> things along those lines. Mm-hmm. Things that your toddler is throwing at you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, I think we're out of time, Cutter. Um, uh, it's too bad because I, I think we could probably continue talking for several hours and, and maybe you and I will, but we won't subject our listeners to that. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sad then as well, but I'm glad I had a chance to be here. All right. Thanks, Cutter. All right. Thanks for having me. Have Bye. a good one. This podcast is a joint production of the WVU Humanities Center and the DA and produced by Nick Kratzis and Savon Hunter. Copyright 2019.